Hello and welcome to this week's Hong Kong Heritage. We're halfway through Ramadan, the ninth month of the Islamic calendar, observed by Muslims worldwide as a month of fasting, prayer, reflection and community. But this year, due to the COVID-19 pandemic, many Muslims are in lockdown or unable to meet in a community setting or at their mosques. That's also true for Hong Kong's Muslims at the larger mosques in Kowloon and Wan Chai. This week, I'm joined by Sadia Usmani, a veteran broadcaster and communications expert, an avid foodie. She's talking me through what happens during Ramadan and the kind of food available at the evening iftar and also later during Eid. Ramadan started about 15 days ago and ever since then, I mean, I had a little bit of a preparation time before it where I decided, okay, I've got to stop the caffeine just so that I'm not being affected by anything once the, once the fast start. But my general day-to-day -day thing now is that I'm up at about 3.30 in the morning and it's good because I can eat any time. I'm quite happy eating <laughs> at any point. So I get up about 3.30 in the morning and then I have a really nice breakfast and then, uh, you know, you have a specific time where you've just got to stop eating by and then you do your prayers and then I go back to sleep. But it's a bit funny because, you know, you go back to sleep and you've had quite a lot to eat and you've had lots of liquid too, like lots of water. And then you tend to get up a number of times to go to the toilet. And, but, but this is just about Ramadan. That's the kind of basic stuff that you have to deal with. But then throughout the day, so you're basically fasting from sunrise to sunset. So throughout the day, you eat nothing at all. Nothing passes your lips, no water, no nothing. You don't take any medication and you just carry on your normal life. Initially, when you start, you get kind of hungry at your set times during lunch and things like that. But then after the first couple of days, your body adjusts to it and you're OK. I mean, the only kind of risk sometimes is that you might kind of get a headache and that headache, if it stays with you, that can be quite hard when you're fasting. But somehow you're also psychologically prepared for this fast in that normally on any other day, I would probably be looking in the fridge every couple of hours just to see, oh, what can I eat now? Am I hungry? But, you know, it's because I know that I'm fasting that I will not actually ever complain and think, oh, I'm fasting and... It's a cleansing thing both mentally and also physically because then you are not eating at all. But when you do actually eat in the evening, when the sun sets, it is an amazing experience because anything that you normally eat just tastes fantastic when you bite into it because you've not had anything. And so you always even my it. cooking would taste oh, good. Absolutely. <laughs> and, and, and like, you know, you always open it. It's traditional to open your fast with a date and with water. That's how it was done during the times of the Prophet. And sometimes during those times, they didn't have enough food to eat. So actually the date was sufficient in terms of nutrients to keep them going for a long time. Because if we actually just... have a look at some of the nutrients, I mean, dates are fantastic, yeah. aren't they? Dates are just like a huge kind of sugar boost that you get. And sometimes you find that when you are getting a little bit of a headache, and this is like when, if say I wasn't fasting, you always find that if you have a little bit of sugar, that kind of helps you. But certainly there's certain something to be said about the whole dates thing that you open. It's traditional to always open your fast with dates across the world. And there's a huge variety of dates that are there. Yes, I mean, for anybody who's just generally interested, whether that's for Ramadan or just eating dates outside of Ramadan, they, you know, if you go to Chunking Mansions, mm. Jordan, where you've got, you know, lots of shops that are Pakistani often, but Muslim shops generally will stock well and they come in from the Middle East most yes, of the time. Yes, 
lot and huge variety. I mean, some of them, the medjool dates are, are, are like thick and chunky and very juicy. You've got other ones which are slightly drier and chewy. But that is very much that I would say going back to my childhood, that was always a significant thing that you would always open your fast food dates. So that is the day. But I think what's changed now is that given the circumstances at the moment with COVID, I mean, when Ramadan starts, the whole flavor of Ramadan is about feasting. It is you have your lovely breakfast in the morning, you have this lovely meal in the evening, you are surrounded by people, you are surrounded by family, everyone makes a dish, everyone is making everyone's favorite dish. And, you know, the smell of food is wafting through the air by early afternoon because these preparations are taking place. So for me, I mean, I'm in Hong Kong here and my all my family is in the UK. But for me, it's quite quiet. I start my fast in the morning by myself. My husband doesn't actually fast. So it's quite a sad, it's quite sad because it is a month of festivities. It is a month of family and people getting together. So in a way, the whole circumstances that we're going through at the moment with COVID has been so incredibly surreal for anyone who's fasting because fasting is a community thing. And suddenly you are brought back to your own home and you just have to do it by yourself with, and you can't even see your family. One thing I would say, though, it has been quite a surreal and spiritual experience because, in a way, it has made you focus so much more on the whole purpose of fasting. Which is? Which is to actually experience, to, to deny yourself all of these wonderful things that are in front of you. And in a way, it's kind of a bit of, I feel it's a little bit of a parallel to what we're seeing right now with COVID that, you know, we are so used to walking outside. We are so used to doing all the things that we can go out, meet people, go and eat, do all sorts of things. And suddenly we are now restricted. And I think it's almost like now what we are doing is is quite devotional in that we are devoting our time to our family to to talking to our our close people on zoom what we are doing in a family during ramadan is during this time is we are catching up with each other every week in a zoom meeting and so i have for instance my two brothers and my sister and their children so we have a huge zoom meeting and we decide that each week one person takes a subject of some significance of, yeah, and we discuss and they, they have the floor and they basically say, well, today, you know, I'm going to talk about gratitude. And I really feel that gratitude is something that we didn't actually feel so much until now when we're yeah, experiencing yes. it. So we all take a subject and it's been lovely. And it's, it's actually been more than we've done in the past, yes. to tell you the truth. Well, I think also, as you say, this is a time where you're being deprived in a way of those what we would class as normal family collections. You might have taken a trip to London mm -hmm. and been with your children um, at this time or your regular community prior to coming to Hong Kong here in Hong Kong. I mean, so what's been happening at the mosques? Well, the mosques are closed. That is quite a, a major thing during Ramadan, that the one time that mosques are actually packed night and day is during Ramadan. 
And it's a it's a lovely place because when the fast actually opens in the evening, you do your prayer. But there is a special prayer that people do called Taravi, which they actually, and the majority of the time, it's men who go into the mosque. And this is like uh, during the whole month of Ramadan, this Taravi prayer actually goes through the whole of the Quran. They recite the whole of the Quran during the 30 days. And so people, after they've opened their fast, are actually standing next to one another doing this prayer and so it could last like up to about 30 odd minutes so that is a very significant thing that isn't happening and obviously people are not going to the mosques the other thing is is that the mosques were also a place where if you didn't have food or you we weren't able to open your fast properly then you could actually go to the mosque and go and have your food and have your iftari i've known students uh, and people before who used to go in a mosque crawl <laughs> it's quite funny <laughs> Because, uh, you know, they'd go on a mosque crawl during the month of Ramadan where they'd go and check out different mosques in different areas and then they'd give a little rating of, oh, the iftari in that place was great, the pakoras were really good and the chicken was good here. So they would almost do this mosque crawl. And so that was kind of like quite a few of the young so young like people used Ram to do it. Yeah. Ramadan trip advisor, yeah. isn't it? Yeah. So it was quite an interesting thing. And I know certainly in the UK people, were, you know, young people I know were doing that. And what's, and it, what's it also called where I've seen a few adverts on, on Facebook where people are particularly refugee charities there's not only the food but is it a time of generosity yeah, of contribution yeah, yeah absolutely the zakat during this month you have to give zakat which is a basic a payment uh, i think it's about 2.5% of your income that you give and every muslim person is supposed to give that in terms of charity to people. They say that it should start from home in terms of you give it to where you live. So if I'm living in Hong Kong, I'm looking now and I'm going to be giving some donations to some local charities. There should not be any discrepancy in terms of, oh, I'm only going to give it to Muslims. No, no, it's, it is basically charity for anyone. Where you are living, you should try and give some charity. If you are well off, then you are, end up obviously giving more of it, you know. But the whole thing is, is that, you know, you should try and give, you, you must give that every year. But at the same time, during the month of Ramadan, there's a huge focus on giving as much out as you can in terms of, say, feeding somebody or making sure that your neighbor is okay, making sure, just doing your utmost best. But they say that, you know, certainly in Ramadan, the amount of kind of the bonus points you get for doing that bit of charity is huge. That goes into your investment account for the hereafter. <laughs> so that's how people look at it. So almost like with greed, they think, oh no, I'm going to give now because I know I'm going to get a lot for it. So I get lots of reward points for this. So it's a it's a very important time that that, you know, you, you should not be eating and knowing that somebody else is not being able to eat next to you. It's only doing a little bit, but I think, you know, just to be able to do that is, is nice. And Ramadan makes you much more of a, aware of it. But then, like Christmas, I suppose, it shouldn't just be at Christmas. It should be the whole year round. But as long as we have that awareness, maybe that might trigger us to do it for the rest of the year. How many Ramadans are there a year? There's only one Ramadan. It's basically based on the lunar calendar. So every, it's the ninth month of the lunar, Islamic lunar calendar. So every year, Ramadan is just once a year, and it just, just changes by 10 days. So now, for instance, it started in April, and Eid, you know, after 30 days, Eid, the, the festival at the end of it, will come 
in May, and it's just shifting. The good news is, is that for us now, it is shifting back. So we are going more towards this sort of winter months where the fast will become shorter and easier. But at one point, it was in the peak of summer where the fasts were incredibly long. And I was going to say, if you're a Muslim in Finland, Absolutely. for example. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So, you know, what what happens is that, you know, people always ask that, so what do you do if you don't actually have any daylight, you know? Then you go for the closest uh, area near you, which has a reasonable, you know, set of timings, or, or you follow Saudi Arabia or something. So it's it's the logistics of kind of figuring out, but then you will have, in your lifespan, you will experience an easy time of it, and then you'll experience the long days as well. And that's what takes the stamina, I think. Now, when you, even on your own or otherwise, at other times with your family, when you have iftar, what kind of food would you prepare? What kind of food would you expect to eat? Well, I suppose it varies across the board. In Middle Eastern families, I know that they will start with a soup a kind of heavy soup. In Pakistani and Indian families and things, in South Asian, people tend to go for these lovely fried things, like, which is awful. Like, you do not lose weight during Ramadan. <laughs> All right, so you might go for things like samosas and pakoras and kebabs and things like that. But there's some very traditional dishes that you would make, like you might make lots of like chickpea salad type thing. You might make dhibare, which are just like uh, pakoras, which are in sweet yogurts and tamarind and chutney mm. and coriander and that's making my mouth water now um, so, <laughs> I so should there, have done this interview later <laughs> in the day, it's a bit, it's a bit so cruel there, isn't it? So there are some very traditional things but each, I would say that each area has different things that they would do but I think they do try and say that look don't overeat but you know what happens is that when people are fasting yeah. they do tend to fantasise a little bit and think oh I really fancy a nice chocolate cake now or I fancy this or that so a lot of those things are fulfilled and obviously mothers and families who are, who are cooking these meals want people when they break their fast because that's the first morsel that they eat they want almost for them to pray for them and say and give them a, a blessing that oh this is beautiful are so nice and it is you do actually feel like that because when you when you taste something really delicious your blessings go to the person who's actually cooked it and so the person who's actually cooked it is really happy thinking oh I've just made so many people so happy by by my food so lots of traditional things I think in in lots of yogurt based things certainly like uh, starters like tahini and hummus and stuff in the Middle East lots of fresh vegetables and just Lovely food, just generally. <laughs> I, I would, re I could talk about food till the cows come home. But no, I think some special dishes, certainly for Ramadan, and then obviously you're working towards the end of Ramadan. I think people reach a stage throughout the Ramadan where they start with quite big breakfasts and quite big meals, and towards the end of the thirty days, they've reached this stage where they think, right we can only have a glass of milk right now. I'm just too tired and too... Because uh, okay. it takes its toll yes. because you don't get enough sleep and you get tired because you're not eating. So the fatigue does set in a little bit and you adjust your life according to that fatigue. So you may be eating less towards the end of Ramadan and then you're getting ready really for Eid, which is going to be the festival of feasts. So, so it's food again. <laughs> now, not everybody 
fast, do they? There are some people who are exempted. Yeah, um, there are certainly young children um, under the age of like seven, ten and stuff. It's not necessary for them to fast unless, you know, you can't expect little children to go to school and things like that. But also women who are, say, menstruating, for instance, if you're going through periods, you don't fast when you're having that. If you're pregnant or nursing mothers, people who are quite old as well or who have got any health conditions. There's also an exemption in that even for work, for instance, if you have got to be traveling somewhere, like if I had a meeting somewhere and I've got to take a flight and I've got to go, it's not necessary for me to fast. Or if it just so happens that during that month you are away in another country at that time and you're not in your home, you don't need to fast. You can make it up later. So there are certain people who, you know, it's clear that you don't need to. So sometimes people think oh, it's forced on you one way or the other, but no, there are exemptions. Now, in terms of Hong Kong, I mean, we've got the two major mosques here. There's our other more historic mosques and others, I think, that are more in, in a sort of flats and this sort of mm. thing. But uh, in terms of the numbers of Muslims here, I mean, you're also going to have what are traditionally here Pakistani uh, Indian and also Indonesian would be the Malaysian. main populations uh -huh. and Malaysian, yes. Yes, yes. Yeah, no, a huge variety of Muslims, really. And I would say a lot of the domestic workers you know, who are Indonesian are, are fasting at this very moment too. And it must be very difficult for them too because it's it's a long day and, you know, they've got the same work that is going on. You've got to remember that in Islamic countries or now I would say in many countries where they do have a high population of Muslims, they do tend to be very flexible about sort of arrangements during that time. So, for instance, certainly in Islamic countries, they limit the time of work. And so you may start early and then you may finish earlier as well, which gives you some time in the evening to rest. And schools and things close early during Ramadan. So the whole the whole timetable changes. I've got kids in, in London and they've been told by their work you know one works for the civil service one is also in a private company and they've actually been told that listen don't worry during ramadan you work flexi you work according to what suits you which is lovely which is a very nice thing to do at that time a lot of people do think that if you're fasting you would be offended if somebody came and ate in front of you obviously you know you can't expect anyone else to be doing the same things as, you, as you're doing but a little bit of respect is fine but I would I certainly don't feel any pressure at all if somebody decided to come and eat in front of me I just know that I'm not going to eat yes <laughs> you know but it's not I don't get offended at all by by somebody you know having a coffee or a sandwich or having a meal in front of me that's not a big deal now your reason for weaning yourself off caffeine beforehand was that is that so that you don't have any kind of caffeine drive during the day yeah, I tend to have a, a very big cup of tea in the morning and um, maybe at lunchtime and stuff. Sometimes just before Ramadan, I will start to just diminish my tea intake a little bit. Because sometimes what happens is you're, you're used to, if you're a big coffee drinker or a big tea drinker, then suddenly, if you suddenly stop having that, you can have it in the morning when you have your breakfast. But then after that, if you're used to having it during the day, then you may have effects of it where you get withdrawal symptoms and you get a headache and you feel a little bit lethargic and things like that. So it's not a bad idea to just wean yourself off some of those things that you tend to eat quite a bit or drink. From a nutrition perspective, I mean, there's a lot in the wellness, as it's now called, industry, you know, talking about fasting 
as a good thing to do. In terms of Ramadan, is that also an aspect? Yeah, I would say it is, although I wouldn't say that many people actually look at it and think, oh, this is going to be good, I'm going to detox. Because it works in another way in terms of people think, okay, I'm fasting, so now I deserve a treat at the end of it. And I think that's really important not to get into that phase. So can you have a sort of a bit of a glycemic up and down? Yeah, yeah. You know, so, so lots of people, like during the day, because they're fasting, if you eat food that's going to be high, with a high glycemic index in the, in the morning, then hopefully that's going to keep you going throughout the day and you won't feel the effects of it so much. But also just generally the, the thing on fasting, people think that you're going to lose a lot of weight during Ramadan, but you don't because when you do actually eat in the morning, you then go back to sleep and you are almost like incubating that food. It is in there. You're not moving around too much or anything like that. It's only when you get up that you start your active day and then you start burning those calories. And then you eat a big meal in the evening and then you tend to go to sleep within a couple of hours. So in a way, a lot of that food is sitting there for a good bit of the time so you don't lose it. Although generally fasting in your everyday life is a very good thing if you, like, you know, there's plenty of books out to tell you that, yeah, two days fasting during the week is really good for you. Or that if you do a, like a, an eight hour and 16 hour thing where you eat for eight hours and then for 16 hours you don't let anything pass your lips. So there is certainly a lot to be said about fasting, that it is good for you. And it does give your body a break. You know, your whole stomach, everything is just resting. And when you do sort of eat, then you shouldn't be binging. <laughs> That's what I would say, because that is the risk of it. People do binge and people can't move to save their life afterwards. So that's something that they mustn't do. You know, we always reprimand people on that. Now, at the end of Ramadan comes Eid. Yeah. Eid is like, um, it's almost like a gift that you get at the end. It is. And it is. And what does it mean? It is about the feasting month. It is about feasting. And Eid al-Fitr is all about feasting where you suddenly are not having restrictions placed on you to eat at certain times. It's actually quite odd when you actually stop your fasting because when you wake up in the morning on Eid, you are hesitant to go to the, the breakfast table and actually eat anything. You will think twice about picking up food because you're so conditioned during the 30 days of not eating. But Eid is all about sort of getting together with family and making lots of dishes. Sometimes people do this thing where they kind of go to different houses and then they'll go everyone's table is laid on either and the tables are just full of food throughout the day and you get visitors coming in and they will try the food that you've got then you will go and visit and it's traditional that you it's a bit like Chinese New Year in that it's traditional for us to give things called Eidi which is um, we don't do it in envelopes but people just hand money over to children and it's usually people who earn who give it to people who don't earn or to people younger than them so now it's become a bit more of, certainly in my family it's become more of a tradition where we've started to give presents we've started to give presents to everybody and I think what's happened maybe in the West is that because we are surrounded by things like Christmas and 
and the children are going to school and they're seeing children getting presents. So I personally think that we've tried to do this so that our children sort of don't feel like they've got the short end of the stick here, <laughs> that, you know, that, that hang on. Because I remember as a child when I went to school, I'd go back at Christmas and people say, oh, what did you get for Christmas? I got this, I got this. And you just think, well, um, Santa doesn't come to my house. <laughs> and so, you know, we always felt a little bit put off. That How come we don't get that? So then that's what we've tried to do in a way is that now the children really, really look forward to eat because they know that they're going to get presents. And it's much like the same sort of environment as Christmas where you're giving presents out to everyone. And so we've tried to do that. But also new clothes are a significant part of Eid. Everyone has a new outfit made and then you wear these nice clothes, then you go and embrace. And that's another thing that COVID is going to stop. One, the gatherings when everyone gets together, but also a traditional greeting at Eid is that you actually go to someone's shoulder and go from one end to the other, you know, three times. You basically go to each side of their face and then you hug them and you say Eid Mubarak. So that's something that I'm afraid is going to be restricted this year. But it's a very it's a it's a celebration that takes place for three days. You can be celebrating for up to three days. And it's interesting because after the three days there is actually kind of extra bonus that is attached to Ramadan in that if after three days, once you've celebrated Eid, lots of people do six fasts after those three days of Eid. And those six fasts are supposed to be big investment fasts that you get a huge amount of bonus if you do those. <laughs> and you, you know, the gates of heaven will be will open easily for you if you do those six fasts. So lots of people do that, actually. Um, I've done it on a few occasions, but I think it's it takes lots of stamina to do that. Yes, indeed, because you've already done Ramadan. Absolutely. Then you've had Eid, and now you've got to go back to that. Yes, yes, that that is actually, that's physical and it's mental. It's a test. Yes, it is, yes. Now, tell me a little bit more about the food. In our family, in South Asian families, the one prominent dish that you will always see is savanya, like shirkorma, uh, which is basically a vermicelli cooked in milk and cream and cardamom and pistachios and almonds with a lovely fragrance of kevra water, which is a kind of like rose water. And this is just cooked and it's just this creamy pudding. And you can eat it like hot or you can eat it cold. But it's a very traditional thing that you will find in every household in South Asian families. There is something about it. It's not actually made very often. You see it on the table at Eid and it's lovely. And then you'll also have lots of things like going back to some of the things that were in Ramadan, you'll have chaat, which is the, the chickpeas and, and the pakoras and the yogurt and lots of Sikh kebabs and lots of, sort of grilled meats and things like that. And then you might have for the traditional Eid dinner, you might have lots of gorma, which is like a succulent lamb dish made with the ground onions and, and garlic and ginger and coriander. It's, it's, it's a very, very tasty dish. So I think everyone tends to have um, special dishes that they make. So so I think food is, is, is very much the focus because, you know, within Muslims, people don't drink alcohol. So the focus is on food all the time. And um, so, you know, we can get quite merry without the alcohol. <laughs> we don't need the alcohol. So it's all right. <laughs> Are there also, I mean, when I've been sort of wandering around chunking mansions and places like that, I also see these massive sweet stalls. Is that a part of... 
Muslim heritage as well. Yeah, I think the sweetmeats that come traditionally from Pakistan and India and stuff, it depends on really your own upbringing in that, you know, for myself, I've been brought up in the UK. And I suppose if you gave me a choice of having a sweet dish, I'd probably say, give me a crumble or give me a chocolate cake or something like that. Because, you know, it's a matter of what your tastes are like and that, you know, some of the sweetmeats, they're very sweet. But very traditionally, you know, that is the sort of stuff that you would like. It is traditional to to have a boxed gift where you would have a selection of different sweetmeats, you know, which are made of different things. So you might have like a milk based stuff. You might have stuff which is made from gram flour. You know, all these different sweets are made from different ingredients. A lot of them are kind of flour based and put into like sugary syrup and things like that. Then you've also got in the Middle East, you've got the baklavas, which are the phyllo pastries with like layers and layers of honey and mm. um, and pistachios and stuff. I can see your mouth watering. <laughs> um, you know, so there's a, there's a lovely selection of sweets. But, you know, a sweet is is very much part of, of the culture in that, you know, you'll have your traditional main meals, but the sweets are all part of it. And and in, in India and Pakistan, even in the UK now, these shops are just laden with lovely gift boxes and things like that. And that's what people take to people's homes. Now, if you brought me a chocolate cake or something, I'd be well thrilled. Because <laughs> I, I, I do like the sweets, but only little, very small amounts of them. My thanks to broadcaster and foodie Sadia Usmani. Thanks for listening and join me next week on Hong Kong Heritage.